Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's Tuesday, July 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A committee of the Texas House of Representatives released a preliminary report over the weekend of all of the failings in the response to the shooting in Uvalde that led to the death of 19 children and two teachers. The report was all bad news and found problems at every level. Despite there being almost 400 officers from various agencies, no one took command of the situation. The school itself didn't follow safety protocols, and those that knew the shooter missed several warning signs. Alicia Caldwell, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joined us for how lack of leadership and communication delayed a confrontation with the gunman. Next, we'll talk to a man that has gone public with his battle with monkeypox. He will detail his illness from being notified by phone that he was exposed to the flu-like symptoms and the painful lesions that appeared all over his body. One of the toughest parts of recovery was the isolation he had to be in while waiting to get better. His decision to go public about his experience led to a lot of reaction online, most of which was supportive. Matt Ford, actor, writer, and video producer, joins us for what it's really like to experience monkeypox. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We also found the reality of the breakdowns in procedures and protocols and processes, of the breakdowns and failures in judgment and decision making that occurred before and during the tragedy. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about this report we got over the weekend. This is from a committee of the Texas House of Representatives. They were released their preliminary findings looking into what happened in Uvalde, Texas, at Robb Elementary School when uh, the uh, this uh, gunman entered and ended up killing 19 kids and two teachers. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. we kind of knew this was going to be it from the beginning. The report was bad all around. They saw systemic failures in every aspect of it, from the actions of uh, local law enforcement, of all the uh, law enforcement agencies that did report. We got almost 400 officers on the scene. There was failures in what the school did as well. All around, really, really bad news. So, Alicia, help us walk through some of what we learned. And, uh, you know, there's just so, so much to go through, really. The report is scathing from top to bottom. Its body is 77 pages of just top to bottom failures at every level. As you pointed out, law enforcement exhibited or were marked with with systemic failures. There was apparently confusion over who was in charge, and it turned out ultimately that no one sort of took charge. And in the way things are supposed to happen, in this instance, the Uvalde School District Police Chief, Pete Arredondo, 
would have been the one in charge. And in fact, he was the one initially thought to have been in charge, right? So the state of Texas, the head of DPS, Stephen McCraw, had said he made the wrong decision. Pete Arredondo made the wrong decisions in declaring this a barricaded person situation as opposed to an active shooter. And you can see throughout the report that, again, almost 400 other law enforcement, state, federal, local, many, many Border Patrol agents, over 150, I believe, about 91 state police officers, including the vaunted Texas Rangers. None of those folks took control. Obviously, all 400 or almost 400 were not in the school building or in the hallway. A lot of your listeners have probably seen snippets of video footage from in the hallway or police body camera footage. And that accompanies the report. The body cam footage, along with hallway footage uh, that was leaked last week to the Austin American Statesman and KVUE television in Austin. But also the city of Uvalde released many hours of body camera footage that, again, shows confusion, disarray, a lack of anyone standing up and saying, I'm in charge, though. It does appear that in the hallway, Chief Arredondo was in charge. The report, though, the 77-page report by the committee finds any number of these other officers or agencies could have and perhaps should have taken over right. from a more experienced department, right? And, and, Uvalde City Police Department. And just kind of continuing on all this, right? So the school police chief, Pete Arredondo, he should have been the incident commander. And a lot of this has to do with that leadership, the incident commander, who a lot of uh, law enforcement experts say should have set up that incident command outside of the school. That way he could have had clearer communication, really been kind of that filter of information to relay things to the officers inside, which were just didn't know. Nobody really knew what was going on. And Pete Arredondo himself said, I just assumed somebody else outside would have taken command. And really, that's right. that, that whole leadership vacuum is, is one of the saddest things. Now, we don't know how much, even if a perfect police response would have changed things inside. They said that the shooter fired over 100 rounds in the, within the first three minutes, really before police were mm. on the scene. So that's really tough to tell. Right. But still, as you mentioned uh, before, right, it was a barricaded suspect situation, not an active shooter situation, which would have prompted everybody to go in sooner. And there's police that are in that hallway saying, should we go in? Are we supposed to go in? It's just no information, no communication whatsoever when it seems like it should have been coming from Pete Arredondo. Police radios did not work inside that building. So you can see in the original release of video footage, a lot of these guys are on their cell phones. But we know, unfortunately, that there were people inside the room alive, victims. We know a teacher survived. We know one of the teachers who succumbed to her injuries was texting and calling her husband, a local police officer, local law enforcement, telling him she was injured. She was surrounded by injured children. We have 911 calls from injured children who are describing the scene as being surrounded by other injured people. So we do know that people were survived the initial onslaught. Unfortunately, we don't know and, and may never know, to be clear and fair to everybody, if someone could have survived their injuries. But... At least two children were not declared deceased until arriving at hospitals or in ambulances, along with one of the teachers who died of her injuries. Tragedy is all around this, and yeah. it's 77 pages of tragedy. There was also failures at the school, at the school level, things that the school system there did. They had a, an active shooter plan, you know, something for the, mm -hmm. that they'd have to use in this. But they had this kind of history of complacency, it seemed like. I guess there was nearby alarms that would always go off. So when maybe they heard this alarm, they were kind of uh, ambivalent to it a little bit. Some teachers maybe, but they'd constantly be propping doors open with rocks or other things. 
There was a shortage of keys at the school. All of these things, again, right, not to say that a perfect response would have stopped anything, but it could have slowed the shooter down initially. I mean, it would have been harder for him to access some of the school classrooms. And that was one of those things that they were just kind of very lax in how they handled all that. It's sort of a perfect storm of failures or missed opportunities, right? The doors didn't lock. The school classroom doors, including 111 and 112 where this took place, one of the teachers whose classroom that was, the surviving teacher had put in requests, hey, you've got to fix this lock. It never got done. I believe the most recent request for that assistance was around spring break. So several weeks before this incident. But it was pretty well known around the school campus that some of these locks didn't work or they were very difficult to lock to get latched, if you will. All of that adds up. And the complacency, yes, absolutely. There's what's called bailouts, right? Police chases of suspected folks suspected in criminal activity related potentially to the border. But, you know, this town is, is 70 miles east of the Mexican border. But there's a lot of activity in town of late. There were 50 of these so-called bailouts between February and May. And the report the committee found is, as you described it, complacency. Now, we know from a 911 call at the beginning of this incident that a teacher from that school is inside shouting to kids to get down and lock in their classroom. She's telling 911 that there is an active shooter. So at least teachers on that side or a teacher on that side of the building was aware that this was not a bailout or it, or it was something more severe that someone was shooting at them or at the building. But perhaps, you know, other teachers on the other side, right? This is a fairly spread out campus. It's an elementary school of, I believe, three grades. I believe it's three through fifth. And so you've got multiple buildings. And obviously, the attacker went into a single building, went into classrooms 111 and 112, which it appears uncoincidentally were his fourth grade classrooms when he yeah. attended Rob Elementary School many yeah. years ago. And he went to that classroom. Well, like you said, it's that cavalcade of mistakes. Yeah, just uh, all around, really, this perfect storm, as you mentioned. And even with the shooter himself, Salvador Ramos, there was uh, just a bunch of missed warning signs. You know, police even think that he had never really fired a gun before this happened. He had only bought the weapons days before, but he had been stockpiling other materials beforehand. And, you know, just uh, again, you know, uh, the family, he had a crazy family life as is the case in a lot of a lot of these times. But nobody noticed anything, at least as how they were testifying to it as well. To your point on the guns, unfortunately, it doesn't take training to fire one of these semi-automatic AR-15 style rifles. It's a complicated weapon in, in many respects, but it's an uncomplicated weapon in other respects, right? Put the bullets in to your magazine, you put your magazine in, and you go about your business. Um, and unfortunately, that's, that's what happened. But yeah, Troubled Life is detailed in this report as well. In fact, a, an acquaintance of his told the investigative committee, you know, in the weeks leading up, he had mentioned his fourth grade year at Robb Elementary School and recounted being bullied. There was some back and forth in the document about witnesses, including his fourth grade teacher, who's still a teacher at Robb, but was in a different part of the school on the day of the shooting. He reported bullying, but he seemed to have had a good fourth grade year to me, and he seemed to have made friends. So his ultimate motive may never well be known, but we have these pieces of this puzzle. This broken home. He didn't really know his father. He had trouble with his mother. He had been fighting with her, you know, in the intervening years and weeks leading up. He had developed this reputation or this nickname from some friends, primarily in online discussions as school shooter. You know, some of these snippets we had known, including this nickname prior to this report, but when you put the entire package together, it's the single most comprehensive and exploratory look at what happened and no one comes out clean for lack of a better phrasing right there were failures at every single level 
Alicia Caldwell, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. They are uh, really not cute. Got one on my tummy here. And those are just a few of the ones on my body. I think in total I counted more than 25. Um, and there are also some in more sensitive areas, which also tend to be the most painful. As in, it was so painful I had to go to my doctor and get painkillers just to be able to go to sleep. Joining us now is Matt Ford, actor, writer, and video producer. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, we brought Matt on to talk about his experience with monkeypox. You know, we've been hearing a lot more about it in the news. Uh, you know, it kind of started off as one of these things where, you know, a lot of people really didn't pay much attention to it. Obviously, uh, there's very few cases in the United States. We we're hearing about it more in Europe and other places. But right now, what we're looking at, the first American case of monkeypox recorded on May 18th. There's been more now, uh, more than 1,800 cases affecting almost every state in the country. So it's starting to spread. Uh, I think officials are still saying, you know, this is not something on the case of COVID-19 or anything like that. But, you know, there's cause for concern and a warning sign to look out for. So, Matt, you went public with your experience on this in an effort to really share that story. And I think that's so important, even with COVID, right? A lot of people didn't understand the severity of it maybe until they got it or until they knew somebody they got it. And it's kind of a similar case with this. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about your experience. You mentioned in a few of your postings and writings that you have been working on, uh, Friday, June 17th, you got a call from a, uh, an associate of yours that said you might have been exposed. Tell us what happened at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, thank you for saying that. And, you know, I'm just trying to raise some awareness around this. So Friday, June 17th, I got a call from a friend who I'd been hanging out with the weekend prior. He told me that he was 99% sure that he had monkeypox. He was just waiting for a, you know, 100% confirmed test result, but he was pretty certain he had it. 
after that call, I checked myself and noticed a few lesions that I had not noticed before. So it became pretty clear pretty immediately that I likely had it. So from the get-go, you know, the moment I knew I had been exposed, I was in touch with the L.A. County Department of Public Health and with my doctor. They were all talking to each other because I was in L.A. when I was exposed and, and isolated. So I got in the following Monday to get swabbed. They swabbed two different areas on my body because I have lesions appearing on my face and body at that point. So they took two different swabs, sent them off. That came back the following Friday. So it took a few days for it to come back, but yeah. it came back positive. A week after, um, you know, I first was alerted that I had been exposed. And in the meantime, I had really intense flu-like symptoms pop up. So fever, chills, sore throat, cough, sweating through my sheets at night. You know, it was, it was pretty miserable. And that lasted about five to seven days. And as those symptoms started to let up, more lesions appeared. More lesions were even appearing as late as like 10-ish days into the infection. So um, in total, I counted around 25 plus all over my body. And those ranged from, you know, the first ones that appeared in more sensitive areas on more sensitive skin were excruciatingly painful, like a dull, constant pain with, you know, sharp jabs of really acute pain if I moved the wrong way or irritated one. And, and at best in other areas on like, you know, my arms or shoulders or whatever, it was still itchy and irritating. One of the things that we'd been hearing a lot about monkeypox early on was that it was a very mild disease. But in all these recent stories that we've been hearing very recently, it's really not the case. You know, a lot of people are, have been complaining about the extreme pain and the uncomfortableness of it, obviously. Tell me a little bit about the healthcare journey of it, how easy it was or how difficult it was to help get treatment, because we're hearing a lot of stories about vaccines not available. It's just really tough. Uh, doctors might not even want to test you for monkeypox because they don't recognize it or whatever the case may be. How difficult was that part of the process going through it? Yeah. So the timeline of when I got monkeypox was kind of, it didn't line up with the vaccines. By the time they came out, you know, I was already so far along in my infection, my doctor didn't even think it was uh, it was really worth me getting a vaccine even gotcha. to help the symptoms. I will say I was very fortunate in my specific situation and that I had adequate health care from the get go because the department was involved. And my doctor, fortunately, had done a little bit of research. So I was able to get swabbed within a few days time and get a test result back within a week, which is still not ideal. But, you know, better than a lot of what we're seeing. A lot of my friends and a lot of people I'm talking to or who have been DMing me, friends, acquaintances, strangers, in all states and in other countries as well, it's just been a mess, you know, trying to get a test. If they even can get a test, getting one back in a timely fashion. You know, there's a huge shortage of vaccines right now. And I know the Biden administration, uh, government agencies are trying to release more as soon as possible. But there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy that goes into that that's slowing things down. And then there's the treatment on top of it, too, right? There's this drug, this antiviral tecoviramat or TPOX, that actually treats the actual virus. But uh, it's not fully cleared by the CDC to treat monkeypox specifically. So it's creating a lot of red tape around getting that to patients who are suffering. From my understanding, the T-Pox, it's kind of uh, cleared under compassionate care. So you have to go through a bunch of questionnaires, a bunch of paperwork, as you mentioned, a lot of red tape before they can even give mm -hmm. it to you. So it's a, it's a very much a difficulty to get it, you know, in a time sensitive thing. And as you were describing your symptoms and when you were notified, it all seemed to have occurred very quickly. The symptoms came on very quickly. The lesions were showing. If you don't mind, tell me a little bit more about that, because there was a period of isolation, right? They'd say, well, you got to quarantine yourself now. You got to not have contact with people. As we know now, you know, mostly skin to skin contact is kind of what we're seeing with this as how it spreads. But you had to isolate yeah. for a bunch of time. And, you know, you really have to wait for the lesions to completely heal, scab over, fall off, you know, that fresh pink skin underneath, you know, everything has to really work itself out before you can be cleared again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, total, I was, you know, exposed. And then a week later, I had the first of the symptoms that ramped up pretty quickly. And then 
A week after that, I had my formal positive test result, which is when the legal isolation order came in. I believe LA County is the only one doing, the only city doing this at present, but I got a court-ordered isolation mandate. So yeah, I mean, in total, including my voluntary isolation prior to that, it was around three weeks and three days that I was I was in isolation. And yeah, I mean, that's tough on someone's mental health. I mean, I, I could only leave to really go to the doctor. And, you know, I was very fortunate in my situation and that I had a lot of people checking in and sending care packages and whatnot. But it's still really tough to not be able to see anyone or like be part of society for that long. It was only able, like you said, to be lifted once I was considered fully recovered, which is when every pox has scabs fallen off and there's fresh, smooth skin underneath. So there's a few ways in LA that they're formally legally clearing people. I just wound up going to the department clinic and getting inspected and they lifted the isolation order. But, um, you know, even in cities where they're not doing the legal part of it, it's recommended to isolate until every single pox has stabbed and fallen off. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I really appreciate that you did come forward publicly with this. I, I think it's very important for the public to hear these stories and understand it a little bit better. Tell me about the reaction that you got, because you've gotten a lot of overwhelming support, really, in all this. And th- that's great that, uh, you know, people came to support you that way, because, you know, it, it could be embarrassing, right, uh, you know, to disclose. And it's even at the height of COVID, when people were getting COVID, people were embarrassed to disclose that even, you know. Uh, so, so just tell me about the reaction you've been getting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for saying that. It has been overwhelmingly positive, which has been a very pleasant surprise given the internet. Um, Yeah, for sure. I will say, you know, it hasn't been 100% positive. You know, there have been some trolls in my comments and DMs who have said really cruel or hurtful things. But thankfully, that's a very small portion of people who are reaching out. It overwhelmingly is people saying, you know, like, thank you, or like, I'm glad you shared this. I feel more educated on it, which is just really great. And yeah, you know, with this, there's obviously a huge potential for shame and stigma. And we're seeing that. And I'm trying to speak out and let people know that by openly talking about it, there is no place for shame and stigma in this kind of medical crisis. You know, it's, people have done nothing wrong in getting it. It's just the way the cards have fallen. And, you know, we have to address it in as timely a fashion we can. So I'm emphasizing that to people who are exposed or maybe get it and also encouraging people to get vaccinated. And if you do get it, to remember that it is temporary. That's something that really helped me going through isolation. Yes, it might be a terrible experience, but in a few weeks' time, you will be past it. Matt Ford, actor, writer, video producer, thank you very much for joining us on this. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.